Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Dig Insights. Using decision science, Dig Insights helps researchers at the world's most well-loved brands drive growth in crowded categories. Their work is supported by proprietary technology, including Upside, the only ResTech platform exclusively built to test and optimize innovation. Learn more at diginsights.com. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share it with us. And as usual, I'm like a broken record with this line, but I just think it's funny. By us, it's not my my other selves. Um, we do have a guest and uh, somebody that is really a legend in yeah. And he's, he he snickers, but he is Rick Kendall. Full transparency, Rick is a member of our board of directors. That's not why he's here, but he is somebody that I've had a chance to get to know over the years and just amazingly brilliant guy and not doing that because on the board of the directors, it's always been my opinion, Rick. Uh, and now you're going to find out why I think that too. So Rick, welcome. Thank you. That's quite a buildup, Lenny. I don't know if I can live up to that. Yeah, uh, you know the uh, it's always it's one of my gifts to uh, to be enthusiastic, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but I have no doubt. But now, give everybody a sense of why I consider you a legend, and talk about your experience, and and we'll we'll segue into the the current topic. Well, I'm I'm beginning to think that just being old makes you legendary. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I started out in this business. I was thinking about this when uh, when I was kind of getting ready for this, that I probably started in this business long before most of the people listening to this podcast were born, I hate to say. I actually got into market research when I started my doctoral program at NYU, and I was assigned to be the research assistant to a guy named Daniel Yankelovich, who you're older listeners probably know that name. And that was really my introduction to market research. Initially, we worked on a separate project, but uh, that didn't come to fruition. And I ended up doing part-time. And then later, when I finished my degree, full-time work with Dan. But after I got my degree, you know, here I'm a new PhD in social psych. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to do some more socially relevant research. I mean, his company to, you know, consumer product research primarily. And he said, well, I'm on the board of directors of a company up in Massachusetts named Apt Associates. And if you want, I'll send, a, I'll, I'll, I'll write to Clark Apt and see if he might be interested in having you join his company. And I did. He was, and I did. And uh, so we moved up to, to Cambridge and I was assigned to work as a survey analyst in their, what they called their survey research group, which essentially was the in-house survey operations division. And APT did 
Really, they said 95%, but I think it was closer to 99% of their work for the federal government. So the projects were enormous. They lasted for years. Uh, I don't think I ever actually met a government client. I mean, my clients uh, internally uh, were the internal research groups that were doing the work for the government. So that, that was kind of different. After a while, what happened was uh, the guy who ran that department left the company. And suddenly overnight, I found myself going from having no direct reports to having a staff of over 100. And that uh, event has influenced, let me say, our, our podcast management mastery in that suddenly I went from being not a manager to being a manager and was acutely aware of everything that went along with that. And I I ran that department for a while, and then Clark wanted to get more into private sector research. So he said, because I was the only one in the company who'd ever done anything like that, working for Dan Yankelovich, he assigned me to head up that operation. And we luckily landed a contract with uh, the major cable operator at the time, And that got me sort of into the the cable arena. And through that connection, I connected to the head of research for Home Box Office. And we ended up doing a couple of projects for them, which he liked. And he said, why don't you come and run our market research department? I had to do some hard talking to convince my wife. She wanted to uproot me. And we now had two children and moved back to the New York area. But we did. So I ran the market research department at home box office for about half my tenure, about 10 years. And then in the middle of that, there was a lot of reorganization. And I moved over to the marketing side and was director and then ultimately vice president and brand manager for Cinemax or Skinemax or Cinema X or (laughs) heard them all. My kids used to say their father sold sex and violence on television with junk, <laughs> using junk mail. Um, so, you know, when I was thinking about it, this I've actually seen market research from all three sides of the desk. And by that, I mean, you know, I was a provider of research services. I was a seller of research services. And I was a consumer of research services, because once I went into marketing, I was, you know, using the services. When I ran the research department, I was besieged by, you know, suppliers wanting to sell me research. So I've, I've sort of seen the business from from all the different different angles. And as you said, uh, right now I'm retired pretty much and stay kind of active by being on the board of uh, Greenbook. So that's kind of how I got where I am. How I became a legend in my own mind, <laughs> or your mind. Um, um, yeah, well, you know, we all know how what my mind is like. Although, <laughs> as, you, as you talk about Cinemax, I do remember vividly being a teenager and, you know, sneaking in to turn on Cinemax late at night. Um, so. The internet before there was the internet. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> oh, my parents will see what I'm watching. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> 
Wall Street's <laughs> rather tame now, thing. doesn't it? it? It does. It certainly does. Uh, <laughs> anyway, all right, we'll, we'll move on from that. But you say that you're retired, but yet you have uh, you have a podcast, kind of taking all that experience. Management Mastery is uh, is the name of the podcast. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I started it with this friend of mine who I actually met when I was moving from one side of the business to the other at HBO. He's an executive coach and has been for a number of years. I like to say he's a real executive coach. He's just not an out-of-work consultant. But he he coaches senior executives in name brand companies in New York. I like to say his clients are the Fortune One companies uh, in that he, he actually coaches uh, executives at Time Inc., among many others. But that's how I know Fred. That's his background. My background, as I said, has is, is been management pretty much for a number of years. And we decided we've, we've done a couple of things. We have a course online for young professionals. And then we decided, you know, we did a little market research. There's not a lot of information for people who have just become managers. And one of the things that Fred knew from his experience and anybody who's following business at all knows that companies are flattening down their structure. So, you know, where it used to be when I was growing up professionally, other although my experience was quite different from what I said earlier, but you would get one or two people to manage and then they'd promote you and you'd have a staff of four or five. And then you, so you would grow up in terms of the number of people you supervised and you'd learn by your own mistakes when they really weren't that serious. And we felt that, you know, now you can go from not managing anybody to managing a number of people and not have that that background. So what we've tried to do is talk about those kinds of things that a new manager will experience sort of to prep them for, okay, how do I deal with that? So, you know, things like one of the things that struck me when I first got promoted at APT was suddenly and literally overnight, I was different. My coworkers were now my direct reports. They treated me different. My boss was now treated me different. The expectations were different. The demands were different. So everything overnight changed. Even my personal life was different. I mean, suddenly you've got a level of responsibility outside of your house that you didn't have before. So that was that's one kind of thing that we talk about. You got to be ready for that. It's going to happen. And uh, I'll never I'll never forget I was sitting at my desk one day after I'd been promoted for a while and back in those days you had a secretary sitting outside your office door and one of my direct reports who had just recently been a colleague walks in couldn't see me sitting in my office and says to my secretary what sort of mood is he in? <laughs> I was like, what sort of mood is he in? So, I mean, suddenly you become this different person. So that's that's one thing that we we try to deal with. And then we, we you know, have episodes on the three main mistakes that a new manager can make. You know, like, I don't know, that they suddenly think that they have to have all the answers, that they can't ask for advice. You know, things like that. So we, we try to cover those very common misconceptions that a new manager has. That's basically what we what we address. We try to 
look at the different aspects of, of management from the perspective of somebody who's, we, we say young professionals, but, you know, they don't have to be young. They, some, I think there's information that can be valuable for any manager at any level. Yeah, so if I'm hearing you correctly, my guess is it's not so much a, a condensed MBA course, right? <laughs> Set that aside. The stuff they don't tell you right. in MBA school, right. the, the soft skills. We do not the, talk about finance. I'll put it that way. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. Yes. So now, have you found that that things have changed? I mean, you're a researcher at heart, so I'm, I know that you've backed some of this up with research. Are there soft skills that maybe have that would have taught 10 years ago that now are de-emphasized and new things that you're emphasizing that didn't necessarily see that important a while back? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> Hence one of, your, one of your lessons? I don't know. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> I think the basic things are probably pretty much the same. I can't think of anything other than the fact that you move more quickly from not being a manager to being a manager of more people or more responsibility, I think that's probably the major change. You know, I mean, I think it also depends on, you know, your industry and stuff like that, whether the dynamics of your business change. I think change just is more rapid. I mean, you think right now about AI, for example, you know, what's the effect going to be on me? So I think the impact of external things is probably greater than it was. I think that predictability has gone down. That would, probably would be the main thing I would think is the biggest change. Without having the uh, the same emphasis that you have on the topic, my guess would be that's probably, probably true because it seems to be the case with everything else. Right. So, Circling back to from your experience on the three sides within the uh, the insight space, does that give you a, a specific set of recommendations or thoughts on the power of insights and information as an effective manager? Is that uh, a lens that you use, or is it just one tool in the toolbox? Yeah, for for me, you know, I'm, I'm a hammer, so everything looks like a nail, right? So I think of everything through the lens of data and information, and that's just the context that I tend to view the world, and most problems that I encounter are from that perspective. When I think of the concept of management, it's pretty multidimensional. But does your experience coming up through research give you a specific bent that you try and impart to folks on the, the power and use of insights as a management tool. Yes. I think, and I've thought a lot about this in the past, and, and that is, I think one of the things that I, skills, hopefully, that I developed early on was when I was at Yankelovich, I mean, the thing was that, that was really valuable there was it was all hands-on. That is, I wrote the questionnaire. I had to go down to the uh, you know field department and listen to the interviews. I had to monitor them. I had to go to the coding department and make sure they were coding things right and see what the questions were they had. So I was involved in all of that. And I also, because of that, particularly in, in designing questionnaires, and then one of the most profoundly embarrassing experiences I had as a young 
insights researcher was listening to an interviewer administer my questionnaire over the phone and hear how confused the respondent was, how the answer was not what I was, not, not that I wanted a specific answer, but they weren't answering my question because I hadn't asked it right. So it was that kind of profound understanding of the importance of clarity of communication, of listening to what's going on. And, and I think that's something that, that has, I hope, informed all of the stuff we're doing on management mastery, for one, but also just by way of running an organization or managing people or managing project, projects or particularly relating to clients. I was struck by, I've been listening to some of your past podcasts. I was, I'll give a plug to one of your sponsors, SurveyMonkey. Their campaign of Ask, Listen, Act, I thought, that's it. That's what we say, how do you deal with a client? You ask questions in a way that the, in this case, the client or the respondent feels empowered to give an honest answer. And by honest, I don't mean they're not lying to you because, frankly, I don't believe respondents lie to you. I believe they misunderstand what you're asking. But to ask the right question and to listen to the answer and then act on that, but to make sure you've heard the the answer they're giving, which sometimes involves asking more questions. So, So in that sense, yes, my background in insights research has, I think, guided me or influenced me in how I manage to the extent that I do manage. I appreciate you bringing up the uh, Survey Monkey interview. That it really was a good one uh, in in many ways, and that concept that you just nailed down of the you know, act, listen, act. As you were talking, I don't think I had made that connection of like you know that model works for just about anything, any situation. As a parent, as a manager, as an executive, as a researcher, it really does kind of drill down. And there's levels of nuance, right? especially yeah. the act part. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, we have we have a couple of things on getting feedback, not just from your clients, but uh, we have an episode coming up, getting feedback from your staff. And a key component of that is to create a, an atmosphere where they feel empowered and safe in giving you an answer that you may not want to hear. Um, it's also, it, when we talk about clients, because I know you, you know, several of your topics are about client-centered direction. And there, one of the things I learned early on, again, is clients are reluctant to give you bad news. If they're not happy with you, they don't always tell you, they just walk away. So it's critical in building a relationship with the client that you anticipate that, that you, without even knowing, oh, I think there may be a problem, going to the client on a regular basis and saying, how's everything going? You know, Ed Koch, the the former mayor of New York, was always saying, how am I doing? And you want to do that, and you want to do it in a way that you say, I really want to know, and I really want you to tell me if I'm not not doing what you think I should be doing. So opening that communication is uh, is critical, whether you're listening to your client, listening to your staff, uh, listening to your boss. So we, we stress that on a number of episodes. So if we're thinking about the, the set of soft skills overall, 
to be an effective manager, obviously listening and building that culture of trust. What else? What's give me a kind of a top five of you know, if you're going to be successful, you you need to get these muscles built up because they really are just critical to long term success. Well, I think one of them, one more that we really haven't talked about as much is, I mean, we have an upcoming episode and just just that, and we say the effective manager does a couple of things. One, he solves problems, or she, and the other is that they look for opportunities. And the good manager focuses on the opportunities uh, while dealing with the critical problems. But you don't, as, as uh, you know, the old saying goes, when you're up to your neck in alligators, it's, a, it's hard to keep your mind on the fact you're supposed to be draining the swamp. And that's kind of where a good manager is. They're always going to have problems being thrown at them, but they need to know, okay, how do I get ahead of this? What can I do that will give that gives me where where are my opportunities to improve my ability to deal with the problems? I guess is I know when I started at HBO, for example, one of the reasons that they brought me in was that the research department was very reactive in the sense that a client, a, a cable operator would say, well, we have this problem. Can you do a focus group for us? And they do the focus group and it would be fine. But that was all they did. They just they, they just were order takers. We'll do this focus group. We'll do this little survey. We'll do this. And, and when I came in, I, I felt that the opportunity and, and the industry was very young then. I mean, HBO was 10 years old, but all of its growth was coming from distribution, cable systems uh, being franchised and built out and that sort of thing. So they had very little insight or awareness of what their real business was in a way. I mean, they were handicapped by the fact that their end user, the viewer, was not their customer. Their customer was the cable operator. And I was struck by the fact we really didn't know much about the dynamics of our business. And I saw an opportunity there for our department to, if we could do the right larger studies get ahead of that and understand what our dynamics were and what was going on beneath the surface. So we did a couple of fairly large strategic studies to give us insight into what the dynamic of our business was. And that enabled us to reduce the number of ad hoc kind of focus group one-off studies that we did and provide much more meaningful strategic information, both to our own management, but also to the cable operators who are our clients. We're going to take a quick pause to highlight our podcast partner, Dig Insights. Have you listened to Dig In? It's the podcast brought to you by Dig Insights, designed for brand professionals that crave innovation inspiration. Each week, Dig invites a business leader onto the podcast to spill the beans on the story behind some of the coolest innovations on the market. Search Dig In wherever you get your podcasts. And did that help that transformation that I, I remember vividly in the 80s as HBO switched from basically, you know, wait until the movie comes to HBO, <laughs> the rerun channel, to original content? So it was part of that, that strategy that you were involved with that helped inform that shift. And did that change the dynamic of who your customers were? I get that it was the cable companies, but by creating more original content, did that create a, a bridge for a, a different type of relationship, another constituency that helped inform all of your management decisions. 
Well, I don't know, interestingly enough, I don't know that original programming per se changed a lot. I mean, HBO had original programming almost, well, literally from day one. I mean, they had their first day of broadcasting. They had, I believe it was, it was sometimes a great notion. And I think it was a hockey game. Now, it wasn't a major league hockey game, but, it, you know, and, you know, there were certain original programs that really were tentpole. I mean, clearly when we covered uh, heavyweight boxing and Mike Tyson was everywhere all the time, that people would subscribe to watch him fight, those sorts of things. You know, so The Sopranos was another tentpole program that we had a feeling that people would sign up to just to get that. But the other thing that, and and interestingly enough, I actually did this study before I went to HBO for the, the cable operator that I mentioned. One of the things that they were interested in was Showtime had just launched. And they were taken aback, they being this cable operator, was taken aback by the fact that they had subscribers that were subscribing to both. And in those days, there weren't exclusive movie contracts. So both channels had the same movies. And original programming was not the kind of powerhouse that it became. And so the question was, why are they doing that? And are they going to keep doing that? I mean, is there room for two? And I actually did, I was rather tickled with myself that I came up with this idea. We actually did longitudinal focus groups because the first set of groups I did, everybody said, oh, yeah, I know there's repeats and it's all the same. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to drop one of them. I just have to decide which one I want to drop. And so I went back a year later and interviewed, did focus groups with the same set of people. We did, I don't know, two or three. And it was amazing. I mean, it was like we'd done the other ones the day before. And they said, yeah, I know I said, but I still have it. And I just can't get around. And so one of the things that came, well, two things came out of that. One was that the friend of a subscription business is inertia. And the second one was what they were buying was choice. And they actually said this. When I turn my television on, I want two buttons I can push, not just one because it'll be something different on the other one. I may have seen it before, but it's different. And that sort of opened the door for Cinemax. It opened the door for the movie channel. It said, they'll take them all. And that eventually led to what we called for a long time, multiplex, which is now there are, you know, a zillion HBOs and Cinemaxes and movie, cha- you know, and because people wanted that, that kind of variety. Hmm. That is uh yeah. Uh, I was thinking where you're, Saying that I'm one of those guys, and I, I just I'll just pay for the whole damn package, right? And we have five or six different streaming. Uh, yeah, and I'll bet there are two or three of those. You keep saying I got to cancel that. I haven't watched anything on it in months. Yeah, yes, yes, but oh well. Yeah, keep keep doing that. So that that's a great quote that the friend of subscription business is in our show. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a management tip: yeah. build a subscription well, business. Well, uh, yeah, it, it, <laughs> this is the other thing that it was. It was a an experience I had. It was a lunch, and at the time, well, at the time, HBO was owned by Time Inc., the magazine company, and one of the things that we kept discussing in management at HBO is what business are we in? I mean, we don't sell widgets. We don't deal with 
consumers per se. We deal with cable operators. We, you know, what, what, what is this business? And I had lunch with the head of research for Time Inc. for the magazine group. And I brought this question up and he kind of leans back and looks at me and he says, you're in the subscription business. And I said, what do you mean? And we had just done a bunch of studies to figure, we didn't even know what our churn rate was. We didn't even know how many subscribers we were turning over and how long they lasted when we, when we sold them. And he said, your churn rate is 50% a year. And we just figured that out. And I go, oh, and he says, your subscriber life is about 18 months. And I said, how on earth did you know that? He says, those are exactly the numbers for Time Magazine. Like I said, you're in the subscription business. And what's interesting, just from a broader perspective, is that's almost a rule of nature. And he said, the only exception to that, at least in the magazine business, is Sports Illustrated or a special, any other special interest publication where somebody is, you know, photography magazine, would probably be another one. Then subscriber life is, once they get it, they don't leave it. And... <laughs> My daughter was, for a long time, a marketing director for Crunch Fitness, Souls Memberships. She came home one day and she says, because she was living with me at the time, she said, we had a very interesting meeting today. We talked about churn. And I said, don't tell me. Half of your subscribers disconnect or leave you every year. And the average life of a subscriber is 18 months. And she, her eyes got huge, and she said, how did you know that? I said, you're in the subscription business. So it applies across things. So there are those kinds of insights that I think one of the things I think is problematic in the insight business, as I understand, is we make assumptions that things are different when they really aren't, or they're the same when they really aren't. And I think sometimes we have, for example, at HBO when I first started, if somebody installed us and disconnected us when we were new, we called them trier rejectors. We said, well, they tried it. They don't like it. They're not coming back. So we got to move on. And our ad agency at the time actually did a spreadsheet where they said, you know, in X years, you're going to be out of people to market to because they will either be your subscribers or they will have tried you and rejected you. Well, the same lunch I had with the magazine guys as they're your best prospects. They will be back. And we know that. And we make every attempt. When you drop a magazine, we make X number of attempts to get you back. And we know the return on every one of those. And they are your best prospects. And he was absolutely right. Because we're in the subscription business. He said they drop you for other reasons. Financial reasons. They move. Our happiest subscribers were our young subscribers, so they have a very unstable life. So, you know, they have to move in and move out and do all of that sort of stuff. And this flew in the face of, again, our assumption early on at HBO was we measured what we called total subscriber satisfaction. We did diary studies with Nielsen where not only did we say, did you watch this program, but we said, how much did you like this program? And one of the unsettling findings we found a couple of years later was that our happiest subs were the most likely to disconnect. The highest churn rate we had was amongst our happy subs because they were our youngest subs. 
So, you know, we were just as guilty as a lot of people of, of having assumptions of how our business worked without testing them out, without really looking under the hood and say, is that really what's going on? And I think that's a mistake researchers make a lot. And I'm not singling them out. I think businesses make it a lot. Well, managers as well. Yeah. I would say that's a, that's a powerful lesson. You know, knowing what you don't know. And the older I get, the more there's definitely a growing body of confidence of like, I got this. Oh, but there's also an absolute awareness of, but don't get cocky because there's a lot that I don't know. And keeping that curiosity and that willingness to learn is it's, it's become hugely important for me. I think there's, there's more things that I try and learn today than maybe in my, my heyday of, you know, of running companies. I mean, I didn't have time to learn anything new then. It was just trying to keep your, keep your head above water. But yeah, there's a whole lot more that I, I recognize that I don't know today than there ever was before in my life. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, I also don't manage anybody um, <laughs> anymore. So, <laughs> but uh, I'm still grateful that I have the opportunity to learn because yeah, life is, it's changing. Oh, oh yeah. No, it's, it's, it's like Reagan said about Russia and, you know, it's the same about quote unquote facts. You can trust them, but verify, you know, I think it's always important to say, do I really know that? Is there a way I can verify that? And I think that's, you know, in managing a research staff, I think you want to encourage that in your staff to question the assumptions, you know, and, and in a collegial way, you know, ask questions of your colleagues. Are you, are you really sure about that? Or, you know, how do we know that for sure? Uh, and be open to being asked that yourself and being ready to say, here's why I think that's the case. Yeah. No. Rick, I want to be uh, conscious of your time and time of our listeners. Uh, so let, let's head towards wrapping up. Before we do that, is there anything that I didn't ask or we haven't talked about that you wanted to touch on? Gee, there were a few things I didn't know you were going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to keep people guessing. That, well, so. you did. Um, no, I think I think that's that's covers a lot of it. You know, we can't do do everything. In an hour, but no, I um, no, I don't think of anything right offhand that you haven't really asked or touched upon. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Um, that's honest feedback. Uh, so, <laughs> unless Natalie is behind you screaming at you, <laughs> why didn't you ask him that? She is not. Oh, she is okay. not. So uh, the uh, that hasn't happened yet. We haven't had uh, had Natalie, our producer, come in and beat me over the head uh, <laughs> yet. But I'm sure it will happen at some point. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people find the podcast? Uh, can where can they subscribe? Uh, you're in the subscription business now. That, that's right. So. We're on as they as they say wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, uh, Management Mastery. You can reach me at this is out of the blue, but CareerCoachClass.com. We have a, a series of online classes that you can sign up for. It's it's not about management per se, but there's a website there, and you can you can leave me a a message. But also, you know, I, I'm, I'm at great risk to myself and my spam folder. My email is pretty easy. It's rickkendall@me.com. So, but listen to the podcast, and you can send your comments there. Absolutely, and when we post this in our show notes, we'll see if we can actually create that link there as well and do some cross pollination. 
and encourage everybody to check it out. We've actually, this has been a topic that's just come up kind of organically. We've been talking uh, a few different shows. I'm not sure if they've aired yet, but around different dimensions of career growth and, and management and being entrepreneurs. And it's just kind of popped up uh, in the zeitgeist. So I'm glad that we had this conversation as well. You know, it's interesting. Fred and I started out by doing, he's, he's written, he and his wife have written three books on how to get a job you know, networking and interviewing and all of that. And we met with uh, somebody and uh, a senior executive that he was working with. And he, we were telling him we were, what we were doing. And he said, well, you should talk to this uh, guy who has just joined me as a, he's a young staffer and see what he thinks of your idea. And we, so we went and talked to the guy and we said, we're doing this thing about how to get a job. And he said, you know, he said, I just got hired here there were a zillion places online to how to get a job, how to do an interview, all of that. He says, I've just started this job. There's nothing for me. There's nothing to tell me. Now you got the job. Now what do you do? So that sent us on this you know, mission. And, and when we did our, our bit of market research, there wasn't a lot for managers either. Now, there's some, but usually it's a, a B school and it's kind of an online B school class. It's not really, as you call it, the soft skills. Yeah, I think my career, it was the school of hard knocks, right? <laughs> yes, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's right. But luckily, it has some mentors along the way. But most of the time, it was like, oh, that didn't work. Right. So, we all have bruises. Yes. Yeah. Rick, it's a real pleasure. Uh, congratulations on the podcast. Thank I you. think that's fantastic. Love it when folks try and distill their knowledge and share it with, uh, with others as well. So, tip maybe podcasts also, if you haven't checked out Substack, Substack, it's a subscription business. A blog, basically, where people subscribe, but it is rapidly becoming the home of subject matter experts. So rather than kind of a general blog, it really is this place where you go, if I want to learn about this, if you go to Substack, you're going to find somebody who is an expert on that topic. And Interesting. it's, uh, so maybe something to think about. I've heard of it. I just have never, I've never looked into it. Yeah. And their model is they, uh, they manage, uh, so you can, be free or they manage, you know, subscriptions for your readers and they can help them promote it and everything. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I, I subscribe to probably uh, about 80 different Substacks wow. right now. Uh, now I don't pay for all of them. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Any Substack authors, I'm one of the free, freebies on most of them. But it's just, it's, it's just addictive. It's just a great place to find subject matter experts. So interesting. That's what I need, a new addiction. <laughs> you can thank me later. <laughs> So, <laughs> all right, Rick, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you to our audience. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to Rick and I chat. Big thanks to Natalie, our producer, our editor, James, to our sponsor, Dig Insights. And we will be back again with a new episode of the Green Book Podcast soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. 
nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.